0: Well, good morning and welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ryan. Today's installment in our series entitled Chasing After the Wind will look at the subject of pleasure. We will examine what God's Word has to say about the vacuous nature of our own desires and how they ultimately fail to deliver on what they promise we will also discover once again that it is only the life that's lived in congruency with God's will that allows us to find lasting and true satisfaction well thanks for joining with us as we look at the subject of pleasure through the lens of the book of Ecclesiastes well when I was A young man, about eight or nine years old, Uh, one of my good friends from school, Robbie, had a birthday party that all of us kids, all the buddies from school were invited to. One of the rules that I had in my home growing up um, was that we were not allowed to have much sugar. I heard that amen, Penny. I heard it all the way in the Not There, there was honey. We could have honey on things, but uh, even uh, cereals, if they had more than five grams of sugar, you would not find it in our house, which meant that when I got to go to my friend's house, ah, that's right. And so here at this birthday party, I remember uh, we, we were walking in that even before the cake the centerpiece of the table was filled like a gleaming, sparkling pyramid of jello. Now, some of you are thinking, Pastor, jello's not that sugary. I know. And I still didn't get jello in the home I grew up in. <laughs> but there was more than enough jello uh, at Robbie's party. So,. Um, you know, I took a couple and then I could, she said, you could take more. And so I took even more. What I discovered was you can keep eating jello without getting full. I don't know if you know this. And I, I would go back for more and take a little snack here and there, but then I'd put a couple more squares of jello. And then I started to feel bad until, you know, you reach a point of shamelessness in your life where, you know what, I've taken so many, nobody cares if I'm gonna take any more. And I think I just about finished that entire pyramid of jello. Now the next thing on the docket for the birthday party was to go to the Y to swim in the chlorinated pool. Some of you already see where this story is going. So we as eight-year-olds had the best time cannonballs and splashing and swallowing lots and lots of chlorinated water. Well, later on that night at the sleepover party, that little cocktail began to blend in my stomach, percolating about. I started to turn a little pale, a little squeamish, And in the middle of the night, I threw up all over my friends. (laughs) Uh, It was the most embarrassing incident I think I've ever had in my life. Um, I I got to shower in a stranger's house. That was uh, tough. And then the remainder of the night just continual cramping and felt sick and just embarrassed. that my buddies were mad at me I don't think they've forgiven me to this day (laughs) and found as the early morning sun brought upon the mercies of a brand new day little bloodshot eyed Ryan was drove home by Robbie's mom and I remember feeling like a puppy with his tail stuck between his legs having taken my newfound freedom and indulged in more copious amounts of jello than I was ever allowed, I was expecting to get a whooping when I got home. But I did not. Instead, uh, as Robbie's mom told my mom about how sick I got, I got pity, I got mercy. And uh, she let me lay down on the couch and got me some medicine. Um, And it wasn't quite what I was expecting as the prodigal child made his way back home. (laughs) You know, you and I, we live in a world that has us deceived. Those things that you think will satisfy, do not. In fact, they have the opposite effect. They will make you sick. The more that we would indulge upon the things that come from the earth, the more we will find that they too have fallen under God's curse because of sin. So the brokenness within and the brokenness without combined together produce not life. They don't satisfy. They do not give the return for which they offer and glitter above. Instead, they return sickness, illness, and ultimately death. There's a passage uh, in John's Gospel as Jesus is encountering the crowds, contrasting who he is compared to this one who wants to come, the thief, to seek To kill and destroy. These words in John 10, Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy, but I have come that they may have life and may have it to the full. God created a good world. God created you with desires to love and explore and discover his good world. And all of that has got twisted right up. And part of the perversion that has happened because of sin has now made it such that you and I do no longer seek satisfaction in honor of God. But we have been twisted ever since the garden of pursuing pleasure for our own enjoyment. Not seeking to honor God, but rather to glorify our own desires. But From the beginning, God knew that there is more to this story. Life was Life was intended to be enjoyed. Life was intended to be lived to the full. Even though it's distorted by the evil one, God still offers it to you and I. And he offers it to us in a way that I hope we can recapture this morning. And so we are, for our continued time, going to be in the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, I was told by one of our members here that he drives all the way here every week, only to be reminded how meaningless, meaningless, meaningless... (laughs) Everything's meaningless. Well, I can see that those of you are still glutton for punishment. We're going to see that again. Uh, But in the story of Ecclesiastes, the teacher is going to show us cyclically, again, a few different passages. This time on the subject of pleasure. Um, I, I know, I hope that as we've been going through this series, you see how significant every one of these themes happen to be. Everything from death through your meaning of your life to the purpose of your work. And now today, to pleasure. Believe me, I I don't have to preach on this. It's not hard for you and I to look um, just about anywhere and see that this is what the world chases. That the world is motivated by seeking pleasure. Oh, how very twisted up our world has made it, though. And so we're going to try to recapture that today. We're going to try to take the theme of pleasure and in looking in God's word, look at it through the lens of how God wants to offer us finding fullness in life, finding um, a joy in life, and that we would be truly satisfied. So with that, Ecclesiastes, we're going to begin in chapter 2 with our very first section, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. <clears throat> and then we'll work through some observations from there. The, the teacher writes, I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself up with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. And in all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward, the portion for all my labor. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done... And what I had toiled to achieve. Everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. All right, we're going we're to examine this one uh, to begin with. You can see as he concludes there that the writer is looking at examining life. Not by engaging God into the conversation, but by simply looking at what can man achieve under the sun. The very first observation that we see here is that pleasure, when it's defined by man's justification, is worthless. Uh, In in fact, you'll see that this phrase is repeated, but it shows up first in verse 2. He says, laughter, I said, is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? What does it accomplish? Nothing. It, it's it's utterly worthless. Um, there's one point in here where I, I have to look almost with a little wink as to what our writer says, because then he gives this little point of justification. Did you catch it? He says this in verse three. I tried cheering myself up with wine. What's that mean? Come on. We all know what that yeah. means. Yeah. He's trying to drown out is what he just observed. It's doesn't accomplish anything. So now he's turning to substances and abusing them. He embraces folly, but then look at this next sentence. My mind was still guiding me. Come on, man. I I see what you're doing here. I see what you're trying to say. Um, the, The whole point of embracing folly is to disengage the mind. Now I'm not denying what he's saying is true. Uh, obviously, the teacher is still testing things, but he's now testing them in a way that includes this abuse towards pleasure. I, I'm I'm giving in. I'm all the way in. One plate of jello. Try ten plates of jello. Right. I am all. I'm just going all the way in. And at any point, you find or I find that our pursuit of pleasure has to be made permitted. By justifying our actions, by saying, my mind's still with me. It's worthless. It's worthless. By by the way, that's the red flag for you in your life, that you may be crossing into territory that's not going to return joy or satisfaction if you have to justify it in your life. Now, those of you who have kids, uh, you you may have heard some of these excuses. Tell me if you've heard this one. Everyone's doing it. (laughs) Everyone's doing it, so that must mean it's okay. Right? Since everyone's doing it. Or how about this one? Well, at least I'm not as bad as... Right? So the justification is, yeah, it wasn't a smart idea, but at least it wasn't as bad as this other person. Or uh, maybe this one. Oh, I didn't know. Oh, I didn't know. Have you heard that one before? Anytime you hear one of these, or maybe you tell yourself one of these, uh, we, we need to understand that we have wandered from the right path pursuing pleasure that will ultimately be simply worthless when it has to be justified by your own defenses. Um, there, there's one other observation here. Pleasure that's determined by man's coveting. It's vacuous. It's empty. When, you, when your pleasures become conditioned... After lusting after what others have, you will in the end fail to be satisfied. They will, they will be empty. They will be hollow. Look with me again back into the text. You'll see that our, our, our teacher here, uh, he says in the middle of verse 7, he owned more f- herds and flocks than who? Anybody. I, I've been keeping track. I got more than that guy, and I got more than that guy. And in fact, if you jump down a little bit further, verse 9 I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem ahead of me, before me. So compare, what was he doing? He was comparing himself, was he not? And his pursuit of worldly pleasure was not based upon anything that God was offering. It was based upon his striving to be better and have better and have more than anyone else around him. Now, I know none of you are guilty of this, right? This is not something that anyone here struggles with keeping up with the Joneses, if you've heard that term before, or in any single fashion by which commercialism will entice you to have more than what you have right now. The Apostle Paul has much to say about this. I have learned to be content in every and any circumstance. For godliness with contentment is great gain. When I was in uh, third grade Uh, This is about the same time as Robbie's party. I was struggling a lot in my life back then, apparently. (laughs) Uh, We had in the fall a trip that the whole class would take to the pumpkin farm. Do you guys remember this? Anybody have that trip to the pumpkin farm? Well, I remember uh, me, little competitive Ryan, uh, with the other boys, uh, wanted to see who could get the biggest pumpkin. Who could get the biggest? So I went and found the biggest. And I actually, I believe I won. But then I had to haul around <laughs> this giant pumpkin that, frankly, was ugly. Just ugly, rotten on one side because it was so heavy and lopsided. And, you know, it was the more sensible girls in the class that were picking out these really kind of more decorative and beautiful gourds and whatnot. These, remember those tiny little pumpkins, those little decorative ones? Yeah, and they could take three or four. And here I am, sweating, hauling around this giant pumpkin. Why? Because I had to get the, I had to get the biggest one. My, my own my own covetousness, my own desire to beat the guys around me now had me heavy laden to the point where the trip was no good. So ultimately, I think I left it on the bus and uh, <laughs> traded with one of the girls for a tiny little gourd that I got to, got to bring home. Um, yeah, I think you can look today in our world and I, I feel like even... They got a long way to go, but even in the sports world, I've seen some more notable athletes selling their multi-million-dollar mansions. Did, you, did you, anyone catch any of this? Come across the newsfeed. Um, I remember seeing pictures of Michael Jordan's home in Chicago, and he listed it. The price was way up here, and no one was buying it. So what do you have to do? List it a little lower. No one's buying it, so you have to list it. Yeah, because who wants to live in? Who wants to live in that? Like, look at what you have now. You have the heaviest pumpkin. Good. Good job. You won, I guess. But what is it in the end? It's empty. It will not deliver for you what you thought it would. So here is our example. We have, in fact, if you look down, it says at the end of verse 11, when I surveyed it all, everything was meaningless. It's all a chasing after the wind. And this brings us to our third observation, which is that pleasure that is delivered to you by man's toiling is fleeting. It's fleeting. You will work so hard for it, and it will slip right through your fingers. The conclusion that you have in verse 11. All that I've done, everything my hands have worked for, I've toiled so hard to achieve. It is all meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing is gained under the sun. I remember another time uh, we were at the beach and I was uh, not wanting to play whatever games here at the end of school we went to, I think it was Bay Beach. I wanted to build this amazing sandcastle. And so I spent all my time building the sandcastle. And then after we got back from lunch, what do you suppose I found the waves did to all my work? All my hard work. Everything that I sacrificed, I missed out on riding those rides because I was so focused on this. And it was gone. It was, it was meaningless. It was vain. It was fleeting. The, here, here's the problem with it, though. This is a human flaw that you all have, that we all have. Does pleasure feel good in the moment? Yeah, unfortunately, it does. Uh, this passage from the book of Hebrews, talking about Moses. The writer says, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, he chose to be mistreated along with the people of God, rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. If you were in Egypt at this time, do you know which table had the fanciest foods? Pharaoh's. It was Pharaoh's table. The biggest strawberries, Pharaoh's table. They had big pumpkins there too, I'm sure. <laughs> All of it is fleeting. And the problem is we don't recognize that immediately because we actually think in the moment it is delivering pleasure. This was a, a couple of weeks back. Uh, Emily had brought leftovers home from uh, a, uh, a, a school lunch that she had. I think she had like fettuccine Alfredo. And it was still, it was still warm, little, little bits of chicken in there. And, um, you know, I got up middle of the night and my stomach said... Since there's no jello, let's see what there is. <laughs> and uh, I looked in the fridge, and th- and there was her little plate of leftovers saying, Ryan! Right here. So, yeah, I thought, let, let me try a little bite. Let me just try a little nibble. Mmm. Oh, that was so good. I just got to have another bite. Oh, that's amazing. How are there any leftovers? Mmm. Mmm. Until... At 11:30 at night. By the way, you should not eat fettuccine alfredo <laughs> at 11:30 at night. So, guess who again was up throughout the night? <laughs> but what was the problem? In the moment, my stomach didn't hurt. Right? In, in the moment, the, the, the pleasure felt good, and so I thought it would satisfy. But in the end, uh, in the end, it simply disappeared. But what I thought felt good was completely gone, and now I was left to pay the bill. (laughs) I was left with the consequences of um, uh, uh, (laughs) Pepto-Bismol. That was the consequences there. Number four. And and for number four, we're going to turn to another text. So uh, if you will turn with me to chapter six in uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, just a few chapters forward. Chapter six, let's look at verses seven, eight, and nine. Chapter 6, starting in verse 7. All man's efforts are for his mouth, yet his appetite is never satisfied. What advantage has a wise man over a fool? What does a poor man gain by knowing how to conduct himself before others? Better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. The observation we see from this is that pleasure that is dictated by man's cravings will never satisfy. Just because you have a craving for it doesn't mean that it will actually deliver what you think it will. Um, This text, it's a little bit tricky to interpret here. In fact, my commentators, as I was studying this, I felt like get close I don't think anybody really uh, nailed it here. In verses 8 and 9, it says, What advantage has the wise man over a fool? What does a poor man gain by knowing how to conduct himself before others? Here's the idea. Um, Wisdom could be employed by a poor man in order to make him what? Rich. Rich. Thank you. That's right. So if, if a poor man decided to utilize wisdom, he now would become rich. However, the very next line gives us the result of that. Even riches will not satisfy. Why? You have to go back to verse 7. Because all man's efforts are for his mouth, yet his appetite is never satisfied. So, so even, even a poor man could use, utilize wisdom to therefore become rich. And so the conclusion in verse 9, it's better just to go window shopping, is essentially what 9 is saying. It's, it's better for you just to look at with your eyes than actually chase it down, thinking that once I buy it, it will satisfy me. Because it won't. You know, I've, I've often thought this before. If I only had blank, well then I'd be happy. If I, if I could just get my hands on this, well, then I, then I would be so thrilled. The problem is you and I as, as broken humans under the curse, we are like leaky buckets is what we are. That which you think will satisfy just without even knowing it leaks out and leaves you empty once more. I found this cartoon that I thought was just a perfect depiction of this <laughs> idea. <clears throat> Every time I bring the dogs out and and they're sitting on the porch, as soon as they can hear the engine, these dumb dogs that I have think that they can chase down that car. Thankfully, we have them on leashes. But what if they ever caught it? I don't know now. Yeah, because you chasing after your appetites and actually receiving them, they're still not going to satisfy um, I cannot get around, verse 7, all man's efforts are for his mouth, and yet his appetite is never satisfied. Uh, I, I would give you an analogy from when we were in the Bahamas. Uh, we were filling up the bathtub once to give little Micah a bath when he was a baby, uh, but we didn't actually have a, a stopper in the bottom of the tub. We just had this little, uh, what, what are those called, like a thing you open a pot with that's a little round, you guys know what I'm talking about, right, a little piece of plastic, and it would sit under there with the water pressure. Well, we started the tub. Now, we have very limited hot water over there. And <clears throat> as we started the tub, without knowing it and having walked away, the little piece of plastic floated up. And what was happening to all the water? <laughs> Literally just pouring it in and flushing it right out. Listen, when your pleasures are dictated by your cravings, you're doing the same thing. You're... you're, you're, you're You're bringing into your life something that is not ever going to satisfy. And it's going to be flushed right out, right afterwards. All right, number five, the last one is this. Pleasure that is deceived by men's lusts will only bring regret. Uh, For this, we're going to turn to another passage. If you flip to chapter 7. And, and this, was, this is somewhat repeated back from chapter 2. As you turn to chapter 7, verse 26, let me just repeat uh, what our, our teacher had to say back in chapter 2. He said that he had amassed for himself men and women singers and a harem. You all know what a harem is? Uh, he, he calls this the, the pleasures or desires of a man's heart. Well, in chapter 7, you would think he may have learned his lesson. Chapter 7, verse 26 He says, I find more bitter than death the woman who is a snare, whose heart is a trap, and whose hands are chains. The man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner, she will ensnare. Uh, It's a completely different sermon, but just the 30 seconds of your time here, if I had the chance to speak to young people. Um, sometimes the way a young man or a young woman dresses themselves acts as a kind of attractiveness. And I, w- I want to give a caution. Be very careful what kind of bait you're putting out there, for that is the kind of fish you will attract. Does Everybody understand the, the metaphor here? So if, if you're looking with me back in this text, what you find is the desire of a man's heart is to find that beautiful woman, that stunning one that takes your breath away. And here however uh, implicit in the conclusion you need to understand that there's a trap that has been set because you're not operating out of pleasure that's delivered by God you're operating from your own lusts and when you do this it's like it's like a bear trap that's just ready just take just take one more step just go ahead and then clamp and you're stuck Uh, Look look with me. I'm not making this up, right? Uh, uh, The woman who is a snare. What's a snare? Anybody? anybody, uh, uh... That's right. It's a little string that you, you, you tie around. It's got a knot. You put it right around the opening of the den or the hole where the little critter comes out. And as soon as they think they're going towards what they want, and it gets, like Jesse said, tighter and tighter until they're gone. Or the next line here, right? Whose heart is a trap? Literally, the word trap is right there. And whose hands... Our chains. I, I want to make sure that we see this, that when we are deceived by lusts, it will only bring regret. Now, there, there, there's, a, there's a word that I want to share on this that drives us all the way back to the garden. I, w- I was really dwelling upon this this week, trying to understand pleasure. And as I read the story again in Genesis where the serpent comes to deceive the woman... Originally, and I, I don't think I was ever confused on this, but God never said, don't eat of the fruit of the center tree. Don't, don't eat the fruit of this tree because it's poisonous. He never said that. You know, you, you weren't going to die from eating this tree because it was bad fruit. It, w- it wasn't like the fruit was poisonous, that, you know, you, you were going to get a bellyache and then die from it. So why would it cause death then? Like well, What is it about this fruit that would, that would kill you? Uh, two things I, I have concluded. The first is because that's what God said. God said when you eat of it, you will die. But the second is because God made all things good, and yet pleasure needs to be defined by seeking to please him and not being controlled by your own deceiving lusts. And that's exactly what happened in the story. If you go back and read it again, the woman says that when she saw that it was good for food and pleasing to the eye and suitable for gaining knowledge. Now, how'd she figure that one out? The, the fruit didn't have a label on it that said, we'll make you smart like God. Where'd she learn that from? The deceiver, that's right. So there, there's this evil cocktail that made its way in her heart that led her now to pursue pleasure by her own definition. And no longer by gods. And God says that will lead to what? That will lead to death. There's a real famous atheist uh, astrophysicist, a really charismatic guy. I really love him. His name is uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Have anyone ever seen anything that he's put out there? Um, Just seems like a a wonderful human being. But I was watching an interview with him and Larry King where uh, he asked Larry King a question. Neil deGrasse Tyson, the astrophysicist. Uh, said to Larry King, do you want to live forever? And Larry King without, without skipping a beat said yes. And Neil said eh, you know, I don't, I don't know if that's the right answer. Because if you, if you lived forever, then you would eventually see everything and do everything. And it would get to the point where why would you even want to get out of bed in the morning? And he's trying to persuade Larry King from, from his perspective. And as I'm listening to this it's occurring to me Well, that's what the writer of Ecclesiastes is dealing with as well. Because for Neil deGrasse Tyson, he ultimately comes to the conclusion that life is what? Life is meaningless. Why even get out of bed? But he comes to that conclusion because he believes living forever will be determined by you coming up with what pleases you. You are the one that defines pleasure. And if you do, ultimately, and I think he's right... A life, an eternal life, will inevitably become meaningless. Unless, unless it's not about enjoying life by pleasing yourself. But instead, we are called to enjoy life by pleasing God. This is the conclusion that we need to reclaim today when it comes to the subject of pleasure. And in order to do so, we're going to look at one last passage. Go with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. As we wrap up our our time this morning, Ecclesiastes chapter 9, starting in verse 7. The teacher says, go eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart. For it is now that God favors what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun, all of your meaningless days. For this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the grave where you are going, there is neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. I believe that we have reclaimed for us, The answer to pleasure in these short verses, that it is not about us seeking to find pleasure according to our own desires, that we would enjoy life because we're pleasing ourselves, but rather if you learn to enjoy life seeking to please God, you will find satisfaction. And I want to break that down for you in three ways from this passage. The very first is by living in the moment with godly character. So if you're going to enjoy life, which is what I see the text saying here, there's a way to go about doing this the right way and the wrong way. And the right way begins by living in the moment with godly character. Um, There are many examples I could think of for this, but the two that really stick out in my mind actually come from the Christmas season. Do you remember the story, A Christmas Carol?, with Scrooge and Tiny Tim. And do you remember the moment where, where, where Scrooge looks in and peers in and, and the little Tiny Tim family? They're so thankful. They're so thankful for what they have. And they have so very little. How is that possible? How could you be thankful for what you have? From Scrooge's perspective, they were missing out. They should be miserable. Well, it was because they were living in the moment that God had given them then. The second one in Christmas that I think of is the story of the Grinch. Kind of a similar uh, um, metaphor here. Uh, little Cindy Lou Who with all the little, what are they called, Whoville folk, right? And the Christmas tree is gone and the presents are gone. And yet, they're singing And yet they have joy. Why? Well, because they're not thinking about the past. They're not thinking about the future. They're thankful for something that's greater than what they have now. If you look back into the text, it actually gives us two adjectives that define how you are to enjoy life. In verse 7, it says, Go and eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart. That there is a way It's not what you have, it's the how by which you go about it. Again, this from the book of Philippians. Paul says, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. But I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, for I can do all this through him who gives me strength. It is the it is the godliness of your character that's interjected into your everyday life that will give you to become the type of person between the one who's grumpy, scroogey, grinchy or the person who has joy and can love life because it's not the what that matters. It's the why and it's the how that's behind it. Secondly is this, it's by living according to God's design uh, in this passage, I see two ways in which this gets highlighted. Uh, the, the first comes <clears throat> in verse 9. You'll notice it says, Enjoy life with your wife who loves you. Is that what it says? Whom you love. Whom you love. Do you see that? You can't read the Bible and not pay attention to what it says, right? If you're going to enjoy life with your wife, that will be contingent on you doing what, apparently? Loving her. Now, question. Who is it that commanded the husband to love his wife? Ah, you see, God has a design behind why and how you are created here. And if you want to enjoy life, you have to function according to that design. So I'm thinking in my own life, if my relationship with Emily is not going well, it very likely could be my fault. (laughs) In that I have not been obeying God. By putting her first, for we're commanded in Ephesians, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So am I doing that? Because if I'm not doing that, then I'm actually not living life according to God's design. One other place where I want you to see the same conclusion is from verse 10. Notice what it says. Whatever your hand finds to do, get to it whenever you feel like it if you have time. Is that what it says? No, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For that is what God has made you for. He has designed you that way. I'm, I'm very instantly thinking to my 7th uh, and 8th grade football team that I'm coaching. Because what am I telling these kids? Win or lose, what does it matter? That's right. You leave it all on the field. You give how much percent? You give 100%. Even if they're blowing you up. Even if you're getting destroyed, you go out there, you give it all you can because in that, in the, in the exhaustion of your own effort to do the very best you can, you will find enjoyment in life. Win, lose, or draw, you will find enjoyment in life. For that is what you are designed for. So I see in here, number one, if you're going to enjoy life by seeking to please God, first of all, it begins by carrying godliness with you. With joy and with gladness and honor, seeking to honor God. And then secondly, you have to operate according to his design. You can't think that I'm going to enjoy life by getting what I want for me. That is not the way God has designed you. Instead, you are to give. So first of all, love. And then secondly, effort that we have there in verse 10. All right. Lastly is this. By living as one who's clothed in Jesus. For this one, I have to give you a bit of a spiritual interpretation. I don't think I'm, I'm out of bounds on this now. I think I'm still operating with, within the bounds of what the author intended. But one verse I want you to focus on, on verse 8. Notice what enjoyment of life is contingent on. Do you see what it says there? Always be clothed in what? Always be clothed in white. Isn't that curious? Well, what, what does the writer mean by this? Well, in the culture at that time, wearing white was like your nicest clothes that you would put on to go to a party. If you were going to go out in public, you were going to anoint your head with oil, which simply means do your hair, like look good, and you were going to put on your white dress. Uh, what do they call that in the military? You have your uh, dress whites. Thank you. Right. You, you, you have these, these unique clothes that you wear for special occasions. However, the Bible will use this same concept by putting on that which is best and using it with this color term with white to talk about living as one reconciled to God. I want to show you those passages. First of this out of Isaiah chapter one, he says, come now, let's settle on the matter, says the Lord, though your sins are scarlet, they will be as white as snow. So they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool, which is white. And this from the end of our Bibles, Revelation chapter 7, 9 through 10. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. And to who? And to Jesus. And to the Lamb. And then the Apostle Paul in this very similar theme. And by the way, I could pick a dozen more verses for this. Just a smattering for you to see what I'm seeing here. From Romans 13, Paul says, And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, and this is the main point, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. And do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. So if you are going to find joy in this life, and this is the command, in light of pleasure, you are made to enjoy it. What did Jesus say? I've come that they may have life and have it to the... Yes, so leave here today and go enjoy life, but do so not as those who seek to please yourself, but seek to live a life to please your creator God. In three ways you do that, with godly character, number one, by following his design for which he's made you, number two. And lastly, to make sure that you clothe yourself in Jesus. That Jesus is what people see. And the more you do that, I promise you, you will never get to the point like Neil deGrasse Tyson where you say it's all meaningless, meaningless. The sermon notes you have there have a concluding question that I hope you can meditate on. I ask, how can you prove, or how might you prove, that you are seeking to please God with your life? How would you answer that question? What, What is it in your life that somebody could evidence that says, yeah, when I look at their life, I can tell they don't just live for themselves. They don't just live for their own pleasure. They seek to please God. And you might say to me, oh, pastor, I try to please God all the time. Oh, and everything. You know what? That's a really easy answer. I, I might ask, okay, for example, just give me one example. You may be like I was. You may have lived your life for quite a while, maybe even up to today, where you seek to find pleasure according to your own determining. We, we heard a story this morning of the prodigal son. Right? Remember that? Give me my money. Give me my money. And then what did he do with it? Ate a lot of jello. That's right. And did it satisfy? When he determined joy, when he sought pleasure by his own means, there was nothing there until he realized, I need to go home. Uh, This passage from Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, what do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and he went anyways. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He said, oh, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? It's an easy answer, isn't it? You guys get the point? That second son, he's the guy who's just coming to church. Well, I'm coming to church. Could you prove it? Is there anything that you could evidence in your life that shows you seek to please God with your life? My challenge to you is that you try to answer that question, how you can demonstrate a life that seeks to please God, because there, church, there you will find joy. That's pretty.